Welcome to Launch Left, an intentional space for art and activism, a podcast, a label, a launchpad for left of center artists. My name is Rain Phoenix. Today's very special guest is David Lynch, and I am so excited to talk to him. My God, what he's done for the world, what he's done for culture change, not just through art, but through the David Lynch Foundation with TM meditation and bringing it to schools and prisons and veterans care, just such an incredible artist who's used his spotlight to help others. I'm so very happy to introduce Mr. David Lynch, but first don't forget to rate and subscribe, follow us on all socials at launch left. Hi, David. Can you hear me? (laughs) Yeah, now I can. I really like the facial hair. Just so handsome and regal. Well, <laughs> I hate a beard, but I hate shaving more. It looks really great. So um, we're just going to talk about art and, and TM and, and music. And and I wanted to just start, if you don't mind, I did a deep dive on your music last night. Oh, and yeah? <laughs> wow, I, I hadn't listened to everything. And I hope you don't mind me asking the question, how did you first experience music and how did it find you? Let's see. I started playing the trumpet when I was little, and I played the trumpet um, until the ninth grade. Um, When we moved to Virginia, I was in the school, you know, orchestra, they called it, I think, and I had a class. And right at the very beginning, I think I ended up second or third chair trumpet section. And uh, I was kind of looking forward to this thing, you know, trying to, you know, uh, you know, looking forward to playing music in the orchestra. And um, then they told me the second day or third day to be at the school at 6.30 in the morning because we were starting marching practice and that we were going to be required to go to these football games every week and march also. And so I quit the orchestra, and that was the end of the trumpet playing. Never really got into music and at all until I met Angelo Badalamenti, and Angelo brought me back into the world of music, really brought me into the world of music. And just, um, you know, I would go in with Angelo and work on stuff. And these musicians, I just, every single one of them was, it was a thrill to be in the studio and uh, watching these, these guys and gals, you know, making music. And it was just beautiful. And in those days, I just wrote lyrics uh, and would sit with Angelo, but uh, then little by little, I started getting more into it. When did you meet Angelo? Was it earlier in your career or later? And on Blue Velvet, 1985, I probably, wow. I think 85, I met Angelo. One of the films that 
the sound design is so well known for is is Eraserhead, and that happened before Blue Velvet and Angelo. So to me, maybe not in a musical sense, but you always had a, a connection, it sounds like, to sound and to the importance of sound and how evocative it can be for film and, and other art forms. Is that was that a good assessment? Uh, Rain, that's a very good assessment. Um, <laughs> uh, sound, I always say cinema is sound and picture traveling together through time. And mm. sound is just as important as picture and sometimes more important. And um, so many things can be done with sound. So um, it's um, right at the very beginning of getting into uh, film, I always, um, for I don't know exactly why, uh, thought of everything uh, the sound was got to be part of it, 100%. And um, that there was a whole world there uh, that was just as, you know, important as the picture. Thank you for sharing that about music. I also noticed that, like my friend Gus Van Sant, you started your um, artistic studies in painting. Is that is that right? Exactly right. All I wanted to be was a painter. Was it just a natural evolution to film from painting and sculpture? And do you feel that all art comes from the same well or passion or same spring, as it were, in, in each of us? So you say everything comes from the well, everything. So the well is consciousness. And um, while it's on my mind, um, Dr. Tony Nader, who is... Now, you know, running the uh, TM organization has a new book out. And this book is for human beings to read and to get into. And it's called One Unbounded Ocean of Consciousness. And it is a thrilling, fantastic book. You've got to get a hold of this book, Rain. Okay, you I will. You love this book. It is the real deal, man. It's okay, unbelievable. So it all comes, everything comes from one source, but all these different mediums of, you know, painting and photography and lithography and, you know, all the different things, um, you know, they're all different. They're all infinitely deep, I say, and they talk to us. So any one of them if we just get started, you know, and start fiddling with one thing or the other, they start talking to us and ideas start flowing. So it's a magical, magical thing. Painting led to cinema for me, and I've told this story 10 million times. I was in a cubicle at the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts in Philadelphia in a big, big studio room in the building. And this building is beautiful, this old part of the academy. And they had set up every, all the, you know, students could set up little places to work. I worked at, I worked at where I lived, but I also had this little cubicle. And this particular night I was in this little cubicle, walled off with paintings and stuff. So it's private, it was private there. And I was working on a painting of a garden at night. So the painting was mostly black with some 
foliage, some green and, and brown things kind of coming out of the black. And I stepped back onto a little chair and sat and looked at this painting. And I probably took a smoke. And I'm looking at it. And all of a sudden, from the painting came a wind, a sound, a wind, and the green started moving. And I said, oh, a moving painting. And that led to this stop motion experiment. Because every year at the end of the school year, they had a thing called... Um, uh, experimental painting and sculpture contest. And so the year before I had done something, and this year I made a stop motion film of six men getting sick. And I built a sculptured screen for it and shot this thing stop motion um, on 16 millimeter film. And the thing was projected onto the sculptured screen. And I had the sound of a siren as the soundtrack. So, um, and it was on a loop, just a siren on a little loop of quarter inch tape. And um, I shared first prize with my friend, Noel Mahaffey. And I would have been the end of it because this thing cost me $200 to make. <laughs> that was such a horrible amount of money it was like two billion dollars to me you know now it was so expensive and I said that's the end of that but then a former student came into the um uh the you know gallery space that, that all the paintings and sculptures and everything was being shown and he saw this film and this man commissioned me to make one for his living room. Wow. And he gave me $1,000. With that, I bought a new, used but new to me camera, Bolex. And I started to work on that thing. And a bunch of things happened. But um, that started me. Uh, and I always, I always said, I got green lights in the world of cinema. As soon as I thought it was all over, I'd get another green light, and it kept on going. So, yeah, guided, so to speak, by consciousness and the great, the great deep well of creativity. Exactly. I'm curious of that in the art world when you first started making film, because it wasn't instantly received as, right, Eraserhead took a while as b being a midnight movie before people took notice and, and, and really saw the genius in that. Did you early on in, in any of your art, doesn't necessarily have to be film, it could be while you were doing painting, did you feel kind of like people didn't get you and you were st still really confident or like what kept you going if you did feel that way? I guess maybe I think pretty much maybe everybody feels a little bit outsider, but the love of doing the things, it was never about the money. It was just about the love of doing it. And if you got money for it, that's just like unbelievable frosting on the cake. So, um, yeah, I just um, uh, fell in love with cinema and I just like I fell in love with painting. And 
so I kept painting and I kept making films and kept, you know, doing, I find other things. Cinema led, led to still photography. Then different things happened and I found lithography and um, then different, you know, all different kind of things. So, um, like I said, it's just, um, I guess they call it a smorgasbord of, you know, opportunities. <laughs> That's a good, that was going to be one of my questions. Do you consider yourself a multi-platform artist? You know, it used to be that um, uh, master, a uh, jack of all trades, master of none, you know, but nowadays I think finally um, it's come around to the reality that we can do many different things. Yeah. yeah. One, it could be one thing one day on Tuesday and then Wednesday it's another thing. <laughs> it doesn't matter. That's it's the love that drives us. Yes. And then that leads me to your quote. My One of my favorite quotes of all, which is negativity is the enemy of creativity. You know, or what is your advice in, in terms off that quote and off what we are just sharing about, you know, having resources or not for young artists? Do you have any advice that you could share about work ethic versus having the money and, and, and just that passion, the creativity of art. It's a tricky business brain <laughs> because, yeah. you know, uh, let's say uh, you have all the desire and the talent, but you have no money and you have to get a job. So you're, you're working and most jobs are, you know, nine to five or whatever kind of job, yeah. eight hours or nine hours, travel time, 10 hours. And then you get home and and you're tired and you've been doing all this stuff and for money. And then you're supposed to do your, you know, creative stuff. And a lot of times that life doesn't work out too well. And um, there are grant programs. That's what saved me. But, you know, they don't give grants to everybody that applies. And mm -hmm. so, um, you know, it's um, really tricky. Yeah. It's really rough. And, and if you don't get a green light, I, I don't know. Uh, it would be really um, nice if there were more grants and it help people get, you know, like you say, the time and the materials to work. Yeah. And they wouldn't have to worry about that. So, yeah. but there are many ways to skin a cat. You can, like they did, you know, they're doing in a movie sometimes, get their friends together and I'll make the costumes. You build the sets, you do this, you do that. And, and work on the weekends and work here and there. And you could do stuff for relatively nothing if you, you know, have it, but it might take more time. You yes. can get a film made these days and cameras and all sorts of stuff are cheaper than they used to be. And uh, so it's possible. It's possible. I'm thinking about how I want to parlay this. <laughs> is there anything that you want to ask me? <laughs> yes, Rain. Um, do you live in Los Angeles? I do. And how do you like it? And when did you show up in LA? 
well, I grew up here in the valley till I was about 14 and then moved to the East Coast, to Florida, and then spent a lot of time in New York, and then was here a lot for work, but ultimately came back here in 2010 to live. So I've been here about 11 years now, um, and I love it. How about the night-blooming jasmine? Oh, God, so beautiful. Yeah. Forget it. I know. (laughs) How Have you always been here uh, since, obviously... It's been, I know you were an East Coaster and... Yeah, I, well, I came here in 1970. Wow. And so I've been here ever since. Have you seen Los Angeles change at all in the last <laughs> 50 <Yes>. years? <laughs> You're not kidding. And... Um, wow. Yeah, so uh, when I got here, um, I don't know if you... You know the Beverly Center, right? Yep. Okay, that underneath the Beverly Center, which is right next to Cedar Sinai, uh, the hospital was there, but it was real much smaller. And underneath the Beverly Center, there was a, a kind of a big nursery, a pony ride, a key making uh, little little shed that had made keys. The guy made keys. And the tail of the pup, uh, a hot dog stand, and it was right out of the twenties and thirties. It was a, it was like you could you go down there and you feel like you were in a nineteen thirties film set, and everything. It was like there was a lumber yard. I think it was Hull Brothers Lumber, where the near the uh, where the design center is, the big blue building. Mm-hmm. That was a there was a lumber yard there. I think there was a train yard there. That Santa, uh, let's see, um, Santa Monica Boulevard had railroad tracks down the middle of it going right down past Beverly Hills through Beverly Hills. There was like a whole different uh feel, and uh, you know, it was it was um so beautiful. But there was smog. That was at kind of the height of the smog. So, but it was a lot of old hardware stores downtown. I got hardware stuff that was like another another thing. Coots Hardware on Santa Monica Boulevard. I know used that to be. Good. Yeah, used to be. Let's say you want some nails. You want you want eight penny finishing nails. So you go into the hardware store. And they had a big bin filled with eight penny finishing nails. And they have this, you know, metal scoop. And you scoop up um, and fill a paper bag with eight penny finishing nails. Go up to the front. They put the bag on a scale and they know how much to charge you. Then you head head home with your nails. Now you go into a hardware store you want eight penny finishing nails. They're in a little box Mm. and uh, it costs a fortune. And uh, if you want screws, there's a little plastic bag with five screws in it and all this writing all over it and a big price tag. Yeah. It used to be, you just scoop up a bunch of stuff. And, and they didn't care if there was 101 or 115. It was the weight of them, or, and then you just go. And yeah. 
So it's just it, it, big changes. I, I mean, yeah, hearing that you've lived in Los Angeles since 1970, the things you've, the things you've seen. Yeah. Well, I like those paper bags. And I remember that from Tom Robbins had a whole monologue in that book, Even Cowgirls Get the Blues, about the paper bag mm-hmm. and how in nature it could look like it could look like a tumbleweed or it could blend in. It was such a, and I always loved that because to the paper bag does have this kind of like, I know paper is made from trees and at the time we had a lot more trees, but it seems so much less invasive on, on uh, our, you know, and especially now that we know how to recycle paper, but it's all of it feels like we're killing the world. What's going on with that? I mean, have you seen in this area a lot of, changes environmentally or do you feel like it got better the smog uh, it got better for a while right and then it got kind of worse because people get like they don't want just one car they want a couple cars i guess so but the thing is um i think hiding somewhere out there are many many inventions they're going to come to light uh, inventions were maybe bought up by the oil companies or whatever. Um, and mushrooms, they found that these some mushrooms eat plastic. And so, or something eats plastic. And they got a big, you know, uh, thrill by finding this for the environment. And, they, and I always thought, I don't know where I, uh, I got this thought, that Fukushima, if you could... There, I felt there might be a mushroom that you could start growing that would eat radioactivity and that there'd be this giant like Mount Everest of yellow mushrooms on Fukushima eating it, changing it. And then when they were finished eating it all, they would die away and go back into the earth. But it'd be real like fertilizer. They would wow. transform this thing with their, you know, the mushrooms would. And they found then later... Uh, Chernobyl, there were these mushrooms that were eating radioactivity. And um, so look into that. Mushrooms, I think, are going to be big coming up soon. And different things will come into being. Like you say, I just read this thing about kelp. Kelp, they think maybe they can make what they make now with plastic, they could make with kelp. And so it would be definitely biodegradable and even healthier to put stuff in a kelp bottle than a plastic bottle. Mm. So I think things are changing for the good. And uh, when we get out of this pandemic on the other side, I think uh, better times are coming for the human beings in the world. If you don't mind, I'm going to read another quote of yours that I, that I really like. Um, and and that I, that I think pertains to our conversation. There's there's two two quotes. I'm going to read them back to back. One, and you can let me know if someone was just decided to say that you, this was you that said this, but I think it was. It says a lot of artists think that they want anger, but a real strong bitter anger occupies the mind, leaving no room for creativity. So that's a lot off what we were talking about with negativity, the enemy of creativity. And then I love this one too. A filmmaker doesn't have to suffer to show suffering. You just have to understand it. You don't have to die to shoot a death scene. The thing is like, that's the way our world is. It's got the, um, all different things 
it's at the same time. A lot of films are genre films or they're, like you say, this way or that way, not both ways. And, uh, but the world is both ways always. And uh, so, and then ideas come from, most of them come from our world. And when you get an idea that you love, then you, you do that idea. And I always say ideas are the number one thing. We don't do anything without an idea. And if you get an idea that you love, you just find yourself wanting to do that. You know, you get a film idea, you want to make that film. You get a lithograph idea, you want to make that lithograph. Doesn't matter. It's the idea that you've fallen in love with. Hmm. I always say that a guy could be going down the street, falling in love with this girl, maybe not the type of girl he'd want to take home, but he's in love. Doesn't matter. Um, we're at a funny place, Rain, with uh, transcendental meditation and um, what's the other things? There's concentration forms of meditation and there's contemplation forms of meditation. And, you know, I've been practicing transcendental meditation for, you know, almost 50 years, but 47 years or 46 years, I don't remember exactly, but since 1973. And um, so in 2023, it'll be 50 years. And um, I've seen all these other things come and go. And I want people to know that transcendental meditation is the real thing. And if you practice meditating, it stands to reason you'd want the most from that as you could get, because you're spending time doing something to get more, you know, more creativity, more intelligence, more energy, more inner peace, whatever you're meditating for, you want more of that. And the thing I'd like people to know about transcendental meditation is this word transcend, that it's, it takes you to the deepest level of life. You can't get any deeper than the transcendent, this field that underlies the whole field of relativity, non-relative absolute it is. It's the eternal field of life. It's always and forever been there. It is always full. It always is the same and it contains everything. And it's like consciousness. It's, a, it's like the book is on unbounded ocean of pure consciousness. And I say that consciousness will be the word that defines the 21st century. People are gonna get hip to consciousness and how vitally important it is. There's a Vedic line, consciousness alone is. And when you think about that, what do you mean consciousness alone is? It's, it's, it's all only consciousness. You, me, the fish, the babbling brooks, the stars, the universes, all spun out of consciousness. And we have the potential, each one of us human beings, to 
have infinite consciousness. And so it doesn't really matter how much we each have. Everyone has certain amount of consciousness, but not everyone has the same amount. If we dive within and transcend every day, because every time you experience the transcendent, that ocean of pure consciousness, you'll infuse some and grow in that. So if you transcend every day, you're going to start expanding whatever size ball of consciousness you had to begin with. And you're going to start, you know, rising to your full potential, which is called enlightenment, infinite consciousness. That's our potential as human beings. And it's every human being's birthright to one day enjoy supreme enlightenment. Then you're truly home free. Then you're truly dealing with the full deck, banging on all eight cylinders. And, And if you don't transcend you're just kidding yourself. There's, you want a technique that truly gets you to the treasury within, to that ocean of consciousness. So please check out Transcendental Meditation as taught by Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. Get this technique for yourself and your friends and your loved ones. And you'll find negativity lifting away and all positive flowing in, and you'll start enjoying life more, feeling great in your body, getting more awareness, getting more happiness, getting more energy, getting more love, getting more intelligence, getting more inner peace. It's money in the bank. Don't take no for an answer. Go get it. Yes. And I know that you, uh, the David Lynch Foundation in particular, has offered incredible scholarships to students and um, veterans, right? There's been, a, you, you all are really leading the charge and providing this to those that need it most. Um, uh, is there, do you have any scholarships for artists going yet? Like for groups of artists that might not be able to afford it, but would love to, to. We do in a way, Rain, because okay. we have, uh, now they've got a kind of a staggered, you know, it's um, when there's another thing about money. Uh, somehow built into people is this thing that anything like meditation, any spiritual thing or whatever should be free. But you have to take into account many things about, um, you know, places to operate aren't free uh teachers teaching you know how do they where do they live do they have a car do they have a a pair of pants or a dress <laughs> you know what is it's not free to live so right. yes you have to pay some money but mm-hmm. now the price is staggered so that if you can't afford it uh the david lynch foundation will make it possible probably if we have the money to, you know, we have to pay the teachers then. Right. Uh, if we have that money, which we try to raise money to give this technique to anybody who wants it in the world. Right. And because everybody is in need, everybody's stressed to yep. a certain degree, some much more than others. Some have traumatic stress. Mm-hmm. Some have just a little bit of stress. And but everybody's got it these days, particularly. It's a stressful time. So um, everybody needs it, and you can find a way to 
get it. And I always say, if you do get TM for free, then one day, if you make a lot of money, you pay get it forward, student, pay it forward. Yeah. Well, I think that's a great way to be in general. And I, um, and you all have been doing that as an organization, um, and galvanizing people to give if they can, and then you give back with what they give. And I think that's just phenomenal. Um, would you be the most stressed if you couldn't have coffee? I'm so curious about your stress because <laughs> you don't have any, but what if someone was like, no, I got stressed. we're out of coffee. <laughs> we're out of coffee. That's a, uh, almost <laughs> like being, uh, tasered. <laughs> Sorry for laughing. I did not mean to laugh at you at that thought, but that's pretty great. Um, I got, okay, well, I want to just circle back a little bit on music and, and images with you uh, before we, we close soon. Cause I know your time is so precious and I'm so grateful to have had this time with you. Um, Twin Peaks, specifically that third season, that was the modern season, the one that happened by modern, I mean, more recently, uh, your use of music and highlighting and uh, highlighting bands at the end, right? And those scenes uh, where they would play live. Did I that? pick everything, but I <laughs> got I Big Dean Hurley was the engineer and uh, producer, engineer, you know, sound man extraordinaire. Uh, people would send stuff and Dean did a lot of organization of these things and um, then would play me um, selections. And then I'd pick and choose what I wanted. You know, if I'm, I'm, I fell in love with a lot of music, but these things worked their way in. They were, they were some things I loved and they would work in the, in the, you know, in the story. So um, that's how these things came to be. And, but it's always the thing. I always say there's 10 million, you know, songs out there, but you want the song that will marry to the film, marry to the picture, marry to the story. And that can be uh, difficult to find sometimes. And, or sometimes it just comes along and sometimes it's the music itself that conjured the scene. Many different ways music ends up in a film, but it has to marry, it has to be part of it. And a lot of times I think filmmakers, I don't know, they finish editing and they give this to a composer and the composer then uh, puts in his or her take. And, you know, this it seems like, um, uh, sometimes, of course, it works out, but sometimes it doesn't. And I say a film with the wrong music is worse than a film with no music at all. So it's very tricky. It has to marry. It has to live in there. And it has to be one of those things, one of those parts that jump it to more than the sum of the parts. Mm -hmm. And I mean... Your collaboration with Badalamente is like talk about working with a composer, but obviously you both shared so much aesthetically, musically, right? And you were inspired by him and he was inspired by you. And that, to me, collaboration is what makes that stuff work. Exactly right. He became yeah. like my brother. And, and it, is, it is magical. It, it's possible to work together with people 
and get something and it's it's so thrilling this idea of combos if i work with angelo it's a certain things come out but then if i work with dean a different set of things come out if i work with so and so a different thing things come out it's these combos that are magical mm-hmm. and and they're all different they all conjure different things it's really fantastic you're fantastic you're fantastic rain <laughs> David, I can't tell you how what a joyful start to my day to to have the opportunity to speak with you about art and culture and music and meditation. I mean, you always inspire, but to actually be in conversation with you, um, really, I feel like I won the lottery. So thank you. Well, bless your heart, Rain. I, maybe one day we can work together. I would love that. I would absolutely love that. Thank you to you, Rain. And I saw your uh, talk with Jane Fonda, and I liked Jane very much. But you are, uh, you have a very good heart, and you are interested in other human beings. And, and so you're a great interviewer, and you make people feel at ease, and you're very intelligent, and you have a very good heart. Thank you so much. <laughs> you got it, right? Thank you for your time. I adore you. And I really hope that when things open up and everyone's feeling healthy and safe, that we meet. That sounds great, Rain. That'll be great. Me, me too. Thank- okay. All, <laughs> All the right. best, Rain. All the best. Take Have care of yourself. One. Bye, Rain. Launch Left aims to create an intentional space that highlights and empowers all artists for whom radical creativity is not a choice, but a necessity. Launch Left begins with music, but its ultimate aim is to launch left-of-center artists in all creative fields. 